You're listening to Innovative Minds with Melanie Francis, where we talk to some of the top thought leaders, business leaders, and marketers around the globe. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind. And now, let's get into it. So I'm super excited to have Garrett on the show and I came across Garrett when he was advertising and expanding his business into Australia and I saw this business called Directive Consulting come up because I was looking at who's hiring in the market and I saw Directive Consulting and I just thought I would check him out and his CEO story when I looked and checked him out on LinkedIn and this is what's so powerful is when you actually get to check someone out on LinkedIn and you see their CEO story and I saw he had this video and it was quite up the top of his post. It was his fourth post down and he said, check this out. This is how it all started on Fiverr and he actually put his Fiverr video that he used to promote himself back when and I'll get Garrett maybe seven years ago or something like that of the video and he's like, you know, this is my humble beginnings and it just was wow, because I'd just been on his website and I've seen the journey he's come on. It looks fantastic. I can see he's, you know, operating as a serious business and he started in Fiverr and I was like, you know what, I need to talk to him about how he's grown, you know, from a $200 retainer per month all the way to a $30 million business. I thought, wow, this this person is so fascinating. Um, So I really want to hear his story and find out, you know, where were the points of that transition like where do you go from a $200 retainer all the way to making you know $8,000 retainers what's the journey look like so Garrett thank you so much for coming on and looking forward to digging in and finding out more yeah no excited to be here thanks for having me yeah so it's fun to talk about the journey I mean for us you know I think the coolest part is a lot of the very first people that joined us are still with us today. And so, you know, I think especially in this game, you know, in the agency world, loyalties, you know, it's earned, not bought. Because always someone I think who can pay more. And so it's really, I think the coolest part of our story is more just the fact that we kind of did it with all the same people we started with. And so, you know, all the guys that rode with me back when we were charging, you know, 200 to $2,000 a month are still there today. And a lot of them are, you know, in leadership and running the whole business. And they're, they're a big reason of, you know, of our success and our story. And, you know, I think directives culture is more a byproduct of its collective core group than it is, you know, one individual, especially myself. But yeah, I mean, honestly, most of it's positioning and all transparency, like most of like agency growth, in my opinion, comes down to positioning. And so, you know, back when we started, we've always had good positioning. It just might not have always paid the bills, if that makes sense. So I would say mostly growth comes from positioning. Okay. I want to cover off in two things and to ask you, they stayed with you through the whole journey. Do you not find that as your company grows, you need different skill sets? And sometimes what you started with at the beginning isn't, you know, the same people that can sometimes take you to the same spot. So you must have hired really. No, that's true, but I'll fight like hell for you to be as good as you can be. So, you know, a lot of what I try to do is hold people accountable to their potential. 
And so a lot of times the man or woman or individual, you know, I see in the mirror isn't always that same person they see. And what I try to do is show them the person I see um, and encourage them to become that. And so some people, because like what people don't realize is it's not like the reason some people can't grow with you through each stage is rarely due to anything other than their commitment. So at Directive, our key is we have a commitment-driven culture. Like my current SVP, I'd say our top number one employee lost all eight of his accounts within two weeks of joining us. So if we were a performance-driven culture, we wouldn't have him and we sure as hell wouldn't be where we are today. And so for me, culture is more about commitment. And then as a leader, it's helping other people hold themselves accountable to their potential. And by doing those two things, you can build a special group of people that can fight like hell when things get hard and push through. And if you do that really well over an extended period of time, you can pretty much accomplish anything you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. So you push really hard. And even when you're seeing the failure, you're really good at repositioning and showing them what they could be and having the patience to go through that journey? Not in the moment. I'm terrible in the moment. I'm pissed as hell just like they are, right? I mean, I'm not like some saint. You know what I mean? Like if you screw up, you know, I'm going to probably be frustrated because, you know, I want to win. Yeah. But I think there's a difference between frustration and resentment, if that makes sense. Like, so I don't hold anything against nobody. Like, just because I'm, like, frustrated we lost accounts because, I mean, I don't ever want to lose an account. What I'm more concerned with is how you react, not that it occurred, right? Like, it's not, like, we all make mistakes and, like, I mean, I'm a professional at screwing up. The, the, the key isn't not screwing up. It's learning from that, but not in, like, this, like, horrible victim, wussy little thing we do these days, which is, like, you know... We, we embrace mistakes at Directive. You know, no matter what, we love you. It's like, no, 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 we don't embrace mistakes. We want to win. The question is, like, are you fighting as hard as we are to adjust and develop and learn? And I'll ride with anyone through anything, no matter what, if they've got my back and they've got their own back and they're fully committed to what we're trying to accomplish. Because those people are rare. Smart people are everywhere. Committed people are, are the thing that makes the world really special. Yeah, absolutely. I really love that. So it was the team obviously makes everything because only one of us and one person can only carry it so far, right? The success on one person's back is the five of success, right? And to go to an agency level, you need good people. And you're saying you're looking for that committed people. And if we can go down to the nitty gritty, when people are listening on, like, what is actually a definition of committed person? And I'll just give you, you know, a stance of, I have a very similar value to you. And sometimes I wonder, you know, am I holding on for too long, right? And not making the transition, or am I building a group of loyalty? Or am I doing it for too long, right? You just don't know as, as a founder, as anyone up sitting there, it's a quite a lonely place. Well, you don't know when it's based on performance. Melanie. Yes. So like when it's based on performance, that's when you're always like, have they had enough time? Right? Like, did I give Mike all the resources Mike need? 
or, you know, Susan's new here. Susan needs more time, right? That's just yeah. based on performance. Yeah. Commitment is very easy to evaluate. It's borderline never wrong and is like the simplest litmus test to how someone will perform is not actually over a consistent, over a long period of time, has very little to do with their actual current performance, but instead their current commitment. And so the way we define commitment here, so it's three parts of what our commitment-driven culture is at Directed. Number one is commitment to yourself. Number two is commitment to your team or your peers. Like, in other words, like to the clients you serve or the teams you serve. If you're a leader, it's commitment to your team. If you're an individual contributor, it's a commitment to your clients, right? And then lastly, it's a commitment to the organization and its vision. And if you hold those three things and you demonstrate that, commitment's very easy to evaluate. Do they keep their promises? Do they say, hey, I'm going to get you this by 11 a.m. on Wednesday? Do they get it to you on 11 a.m. on Wednesday? And if they don't and you hold call them out on it, do they make excuses or do they say sorry? Because we all break our commitments. The question is, do we obfuscate that? and not own it, right? One of our values is ownership breeds excellence. So, right? so people who take ownership of themselves, their actions, or their responsibility usually are high commitment individuals. And over a period of time, those people will develop into what the organization requires. And having trust in those people and empowering those people is always the smartest thing you can do. And tell me, how did you go about finding these core people? at the very beginning that is going to take you through the journey. What was, you know, what was some of the tact of acquiring this talent? Because that's sometimes the, I guess that's a hard part in Australia. And I don't know, as you're growing into this market, whether you notice that, but in, I don't know exactly the landscape over there. I would love to hear, but it is, the talent is really, really hard to source in Australia. We've got a small population, as you know, we haven't had migration for the last two years, which we heavily rely on. And we need that immigration to come through so they actually understand our culture before they're actually ready for the moment. Yeah, in your agency world, right? You have the holding companies and they have their branches and they'll send someone to work in Australia and then they can eventually love Australia and they might leave there and come to you. But if you got nobody entering because of COVID, I mean, that's a brutal talent market. That, that's sure. that's exa- And that's the same for our tech and our SaaS companies that really lack dev talent. There is no dev talent you know they're constantly looking for migration to bring deaf talent in so talent is just difficult for all companies right now even you know companies that are probably trying to hire marketing resources internally and saying you know we want to bring it in-house they will have difficulties potentially maybe more in SaaS companies and engineering than marketing I guess I'm curious to learn about your talent acquisition experience and how you did that at the beginning because that was one of the key results as to why you succeeded but yeah what was your also experience I'm sure now you're experiencing it all again as you're growing into the next countries so what are you doing differently well we have a really amazing head of recruiting here and her team is really really strong so we have four people in recruiting at directive um full-time so we don't outsource our recruiting. We keep it all in-house. Um, that's a really big value proposition. Like that's a big part of developing, like is identifying and recruiting talent. So I would say, you know, uh, Haley and her team is really impactful for us. But for me, the secret, if that makes sense, is when most people hire, 
They're more worried about getting it wrong than they are about getting it right. Um, so they hire for floor, not ceiling. So what they do is they hire for experience, not talent. Mm. Right? They want that resume that's so good that even when that person screws up, they can be like, well, I mean, what am I supposed to know? They used to work at X, Y, or Z. I figured they could do it here. I've done that for years. We're all guilty of that. We all want to cover our butts. And we want to, you know, the sexier the resume, the better, right? If they come from like an agency we admire, mm. we almost always are like, wow, that person must be great. Now, if they were really that good, the agency probably wouldn't have let them leave, right? So essentially, a lot of times we take other people's trash and we try to call it a treasure and then it doesn't work out. Because they worked at some company and they pick a name. But the bigger the name, the easier to hide sometimes. And so what I think we did really well, and I think what you know I did well in the beginning when this was kind of what I was focused on, was I would look you dead in your soul and figure out if you had it or not. I didn't care what your background was. Like our current SVP ran, a, was a manager at Best Buy for 15 years. Like what the hell are we talking about, right? Like a lot of my, my other guy was like straight out of college selling medical devices on like landing pages that were okay. My other guy was deleting HubSpot contact records because um, his company didn't want to run out of money. Another woman uh, who we brought in early, Hannah, super talented, was at a customer, but it was a good customer. And she saw our pitch and was like, oh, I want to work for you guys. And she joined us when the company wouldn't hire us. Like there's all been sort of different people that have come and gone over the years. I think the key to talent is to hire for talent, not experience. We all want talent, but we hire for experience. And so if you really want to find those people that have the right character, the right values, the right commitment, and the right amount of upside, then you got to hire for talent. Now, the hard part is that directive now, you know, we've got all these departments and hiring managers and directors. It's a lot harder to hire for talent, right? We got bigger accounts. It, I had to hire for talent because who the hell was I going to hire when I had, you know, $2,000 accounts or $500 accounts. So you kind of have to focus on talent. So I wish we were better at that. And that's kind of been my message for our people ops and recruiting team is how do we go back to hiring for talent instead of hiring for experience? Yeah. Amazing. And now entering the Australian market and UK market, tell me about the Australian market experience in hiring here. How has it been different for you in comparison to USA? What, what have you experienced? I'm not even that involved anymore, to be honest. It's hard, though, I'm sure. Um, I mean, you're different time zones. So I think the time zone part is probably the hardest part because you have these like hiring windows, right? Where like we have to get someone between 8 and 10 a.m. Australian time, which is a day ahead of us. Yeah. And then our afternoon. And then I have to make sure I have a West Coast recruiter on it, not an East Coast recruiter, because then it's genuinely impossible. So like there's that kind of stuff that definitely makes it hard for sure. I would argue every country has talent. I mean, I, I just got back from Australia. Wonderfully talented people, uh, very similar culture values, very industrious, hardworking. So I'm not someone who ever believes in like limitations. So my brain doesn't even like, if someone tells me Australia is hard, I'm like, okay, whatever, sure, let's do it. Like it doesn't really, my brain doesn't really process like something being harder than something else. I just feel like I probably haven't spent enough time on that thing yet. Whoever I put my money or time towards, I've ever, I've always been able to figure out. 
Do you know what? I After we caught up last week when you were here in Sydney and that was great, we actually got to catch up and discuss and see each other face to face, I was thinking about you and I was thinking that how different Australia is in courtship and how we do business. And I'm so, uh, I guess I'm excited for you to experience it because I look at USA, right? And I experience your culture and how you do business. And there is parts that are very similar and there's parts on the New York side that are very different in how we want to be courted and how we want to be marketed to. And I guess I was thinking that some of the things that have really won for you, and we'll share that, you know, some of the things that really took you off your journey to where you're at, it might not have maybe worked here and, you know, not, might not have resonated because us Australians, we like this nurture funnel to be really, really long, you know, and we like it to be really, really soft. And we don't like all that directness of, you know, come on a call and do this with us. Like there's this totally different culture. And I wonder if we got it from the English, you know, because we've got that, um, you know, that politeness. Well, that's what everybody told me, right? So everybody told me the UK would be hard. First month, we had 60 sales calls with our target accounts. Yeah, because they don't ask, Garrett. They don't maybe ask. So maybe there's a new, you know. We... Here's the thing. Everybody wants results, baby. Everybody wants results. You might want me to get you results your way. Yes. But if you genuinely believe this is the most committed agency. Yeah. They have the best methodology. Yeah. I can afford them. And yeah, they might rub me the wrong way sometimes and they're not Australian, but I've tried the Australian thing. And frankly, I wouldn't be talking to you if it worked. And when you put that all together, what makes Directive unique is I still sign off on every engagement before it goes to the client. And if you can get that level of commitment from an organization that says we are going to do everything in our power to accomplish the objective you hired us for, not everything in our power to run the best LinkedIn campaigns. Not everything in our power to run the best Google ads or do the best SEO or do the best video or RevOps or creative or design or the best strategy. Nobody wants the best strategy. Nobody wants the best anything. All they want you to do is keep your word and accomplish the thing that they hired you for, the outcome. And because we're so outcome centric over a long period of time, we eventually earn someone's business. They might not hire us right away. They might go to the other shop. That's fine. But they eventually come back because there's very few humans in the world that are that committed to a shared objective and will do anything in their power to hit it. I think I think there's going to be a lot of respect in that. And when looking at the USA market and how marketing has evolved so much, and I told you that when we met up, you know, there we are way behind when I look at how you guys are just really good at marketing. Okay. There's just it just is something that has maybe progressed more. We probably just spend more on it though, Melanie, because I mean, some of you all like, you're not, we're not behind, you You all are ahead on everything too. Like I went and spoke at a conference, I think in 2015 in Adelaide and you guys had what you call PayWave, right? Where you use that. I still don't have tap to pay on my business credit card in the US. And like a lot of the places in the US make me swipe or insert my card and I can't even tap it yet. So like in some areas, yeah, maybe the US is ahead. But your transit system is ahead of ours. Your payment system is ahead of ours. I bet you your educational system. So like, it's like, it's a catch-22. Our banking system. Yes, I know. We're very good in banking. We're like top-notch. We really catch up really fast, um, you know, in other departments like our 
train network because we can implement really quick, yeah. right? But I will say to you, demand generation is a new word here, you know, um, uh, in Australia. We don't, we, if, <laughs> I can tell you if I went and tried to put out a demand generation director on Indeed or Seek or a key recruitment, no, there's going to be no applicants. I've even tried actually, so I can really? tell you that. So something that lag, culture more lags in like industry and business lags maybe a little bit more. And Correct. Yeah, but to, to me, that's inspiring, right? It creates all these new opportunities because you can be the first mover. Absolutely, it does. And, and the other thing is it's also moving at the right speed for the person that you're trying to target. Do they... Can they adopt to that? You know, can they, is that too far of a move? You know, it, it can't, it come in and you think I'm going to disrupt, I'm going to do it this way, but that doesn't always work. Um, I, but I think that, I think there's a really great opportunity for Australia and especially because now all Australian companies, they want, as they're growing, they want the US footprint. Like they see America and they're like, there's this big opportunity. We're doing it so well here. And it's a really tough competitive market here with such a small population. So if we're winning here, so we're going to try it over there and it should work. And sometimes, most of the times, the really good businesses, they do really well and they're really inspired. And that's when they get exposed to the marketing over there. Right. Zero, Atlason, right. Those are all amazing brands that have come out of Australia. Absolutely. That are inspiring, right? I want to go back and cover off the outcome centric culture that you mentioned before. And you said, you know, I'm really outcome focused. And there's something that's really unique about how when you talk about outcome centric, because I actually got a look inside of what you mean by outcome centric. So when you say outcome centric, you are actually looking at financials and deliverables on a financial metric yeah, of, of course. that commitment. And that's something that's unique about you, I would say, and you would agree with that, that, you know, there's no other companies that sit there and model out your financials. No, I haven't seen any of my competitors who, so like one of the things that got me frustrated when I was doing this agency game is like when we blew up and we made more money than I'd ever dreamed of making as um, an entrepreneur, let's just say, just as a human. I never really, I come from, you know, really poor missionary kid kind of background and, you know, money to me was, is obviously like more of like the measuring stick than it is something like. I'm not really intimately connected with money. It's not like I'm wearing the same jeans from, you know, five years ago. I haven't got too fat yet. So it's mostly like, for me, it's like, it's more this measuring stick. It's not like, it's just not something I'm not connected with weirdly, um, I guess. But the, the part that frustrated me is when you grow an agency and it, and it happens at all the stages, but it really happens when you start to get successful. I'd say like, seven to ten million dollars you your quality goes to crap and nobody wants to be real about it but i'm as pretty much as raw and real as it gets so like you know when you start an agency at first the owner the founder whoever is very close to the product it's their baby right they they have client relationships they're connected to people they like when you screw up under 10 million dollars you get a phone call and it like that pain is right there. So you have to kind of fix it. Well, once you get, let's say over 10 million in the agency world, you have enough directors and VPs and people that can eat crap for you. And so as the owner, you lie to yourself because it's the only way you can keep doing all the PR and content and sales is you just don't look at the product anymore. 
And people will lie to you and they'll act like they're close to it and crap, but they're not. The bigger you get in the agency world, the further you get away from the thing that your customer actually experiences. And one day I did the unthinkable and you'll see what this happens, Melanie, when you get big enough, you're going to go back and you'll be like, Hey, can I see that work we just delivered for that account that I sold two months ago? And it breaks your heart because you look at it and the client's happy. Don't get me wrong. But if you got into this game to make clients happy, that's the wrong reason. Like you got to get into this game for your own standards of excellence, right? Like, what I want is I want the smartest person in the entire world at whatever thing I'm selling to look at my work and go, damn, that's good. I might do this or that different, but wow, that's elite. And that inspires me to be even better as a professional. That's my standard. My standard is not the client. If the client knew what the heck they were doing, they wouldn't have hired us in the first place. So if you want clients to be happy, that's like the lowest bar of excellence for your business. And so for me, the biggest bar of excellence was a true subject matter. I could look at any of my work and be inspired by. And when I looked many years ago, not recently, and I saw that, it was just like earth shattering. And I could see why all my competitors who are on the speaking tour, why they stay away from it, right? Like, you know that they are in the day-to-day and they'll tell you they're not in the day-to-day. Well, the reason they're not in the day-to-day is it's really hard to be in the day-to-day and then go on stage and say how great you are. And I decided I never wanted to be that person. I never wanted that inverse scale where my revenue went up and my quality went down. And so we invested a ton of money into how we deliver value, what that experience should look like, what our standards of excellence are, how does someone get something get approved before it gets to a customer. And by truly honoring our customers, by delivering on our promises that our brand and our sales team makes, that's what I think the key to direct success is. What I say is like, once you get to a certain threshold of success in an industry, and you have enough market share, it's like you're falling through the sky and you can't stop falling and you're going to hit the ground and you only have two options. You land on good reputation or you land on bad reputation. And I wanted to make sure that no matter what, especially if you're a niche provider, that you never lose your reputation for driving results. Absolutely. I really admire that. That's really really great insight and foresight if then there were so many things you said that I want to touch on going back to the outcome centric when did you start doing the financial modeling and what are the type of the questions that you ask because I guess people want to go okay my agency doesn't do that right they don't do financial metrics how can you then do it yourself for yourself going okay how yeah sorry I didn't answer that yeah I didn't answer that well enough so like When it comes to outcomes, first and foremost, I do everything for myself before I sell it. Agreed. Same. I spent over a million dollars on LinkedIn ads last year, personal. So I spend, I think, more on LinkedIn than almost most of my clients. Like, that's not a small budget for LinkedIn. And when I did it, I failed doing what all the blog posts taught me. Right? Like I've never worked for anyone. So all I do is I just like watch YouTube videos, read books, read articles, make phone calls, ask questions, and then just trial and error. Right. And then I try to figure it out. Yeah. Once I figure out not how it works, but why, why it works, which is what I care about, then I usually sell it because I know I can do it. Because if I can get it work for a B2B services firm, I definitely can get it work for a SaaS product. It's way easier. Got it. And so yeah. what I did 
is I was like, okay, well, how do I know if I'm profitable on LinkedIn? Mm. There's no blog post on that. No. And so I started to build all my own financial models. My background was economics. Um, and so I like models and I like finance. And so I started to develop my own models on just using what my SaaS customers use, LTV CAC. So like everything, like I have a product team that innovates our product just like my clients do, right? I have the same, I do everything like they do so that I know if it'll work or not with a high level of confidence, right? Like, oh, this is your sales process. Like I use winning by design for my sales process, which is what all my SaaS clients use. So I know how to monetize my marketing just as much as I know how to monetize theirs, right? Like I'm trying to live in their shoes as much as I can. And so what I found was I needed better financial modeling. So I started to develop my own. And then I needed, the only way I'd spend my own money is if I accomplished an outcome. So I had to hit my forecast, right? Like finance gives me a forecast. I need to get from 20 million to 25 million in the next three months. So I got to make $5 million. Well, how would I do that? How much money do I need to spend? What are my life cycle stages, right? And when I did all that, and I went to my clients and they were like, wow, we love your marketing. Like we saw your convo ad or whatever. We came to you through that. I'll be like, cool. Do you have that? And none of them have it. They're all just like running around like chicken with their head cut off. They're working their butts off. But then one day, right, they have to go in front of the board. They have to go in front of the CRO or the CMO. And they say, what'd you do with that million dollars? They go, blah, 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 blah. And so I wanted to help them. And I, at my heart of hearts, I love helping people. And so I wanted to build systems that gave them power. So like how, like I can help a director of demand gen who works with me, tell them how much market share they took quarter over quarter. I don't know any other agencies that can help a director of demand gen report to the board on how much market share they took, right? Like when you can start actually giving people power and understand the game they live in, right? Like they get their series A, they have to show how much market share they got with their series A so they can raise their series B. And when I can be a true partner for people and help them with their jobs to be done and what they're trying to accomplish, it works. So when we sign a client at Directive, we set up an NSM. It's a North Star metric. That's what me and you together, we are accountable to this. Now, the problem is, is marketers accept or create the worst goals ever. They're the ultimate yes people, right? Like, hey, Melanie, can you get us 50 leads this month? And you just go, Yeah. <laughs> and then you well, how many did you get last month? They're like three. And they're like, oh, okay, dope. What's the budget? And they're like, well, it's the same as last month. And you're like, fam, I don't work magic over here. I'm not a miracle worker. And so I built systems and stuff so you can say, how many leads do you want? And then it'll calculate how much budget you need, what the payback period is, what the LTV CAC ratio is, what the incremental ROI is, based off your gross margin, your churn rate, your retention, like truly advanced analysis. So you can go back to the board and say, I would love to get you 50 SQLs or whatever that KPI is, but I'm going to need $47,000.67. Yes. Now that is power. We can have a seat at the table. We can have a grown-up conversation and we can agree to accomplish an objective. And that's what makes us different. What happens when it's a series A and it's a new marketing director that's come in? They've never really had a marketing director ever sit at the table so he doesn't actually know any of the numbers at all so he can't give you anything he's new to role which is quite typical you know for a, a company coming in and just starting to play into marketing and not having metrics so maybe never ran paid ads before right so you've got no base to really ask him so he's 
need to roll. How would you take him through the journey? Would you say, look, let's run a few experiments here? Or how would you, you know, come up with a model when there's no background or track history on how the acquisition cost is? Yeah. We built an anonymized data warehouse of our clients' spend. So I have over $100 million in spend. And I can tell you, by every, we have enough market share and enough industries that I can give you benchmarks for every industry in SaaS. We have that many clients now where I can tell you, oh, you're a DevOps company? Well, I did the last three IPOs. Here's what their benchmarks are. I'm not going to tell you what their names are or anything, but I'll tell you, oh, you've never done it before. And then what you do is you take your gross margin, you take your retention rate, you take your average order value, and then you plot that around the unit economic of one. So when you build a model around an economic unit of one, you can say, here's how much you can spend to hit an LTV CAC of three based off of your business KPIs. And then here are the benchmarks we have based off of $100 million spend on MQL to SAL, SAL to SQL, SQL to op, op to deal, deal to customer. And then we can essentially help you understand and then be like, well, you ain't going to close 50%. Let's make your close rate more like 15 to start. Okay. And then, right, and we can help you model it out. And we say, okay, let's start here. And then in, at the end of the quarter, let's adjust. And we can start to build that relationship and that dynamic. But that transparency and that authenticity of wanting to be held accountable to revenue, like in a very, very real way, is why those Series A, Series B, and well as publicly traded software companies choose Directive. One thing that I want to say is those benchmarks you hold, that will go really nicely on your LinkedIn post. Oh, yeah. I've never even... I just thought I'd tell you because uh, I saw a demand gen manager at um, at a particular company, which I won't name because it'll just irritate you the name. So, but you know who <laughs> um, was sharing those benchmarks and it did really well. And I know how much you're now in the LinkedIn game and all that. So Yeah, yeah. No, I love that because yeah, benchmarks are so important. They, they're like, everybody wants it because everybody wants to compare, right? We want to know how are we doing. Yeah. The other thing you can do is you can look at our website. Uh, we built the largest database of search marketing data for software. It's called Pulse. So you you have over, I think, um, 400 verticals in software. And you can see what everyone's spending and how much they rank. Perfect. So like we have more like data, I think, than anyone in the world when it comes to search marketing for software companies. That's awesome. And so you can see how well do they rank organically, how much are they spending on Google ads, well, you know, and how you compare broken out by vertical. So it's on our website. It's directiveconsulting.com forward slash pulse, I believe. Yeah, awesome. No, definitely check that out. And I really liked how you ran us through the, you know, how you actually model out revenue and how they can win on that. I think that that's a really interesting play. I don't know if you've got any resources around you doing that. I know you've got so much resource where people can go and you're actually going and calculating this with other CMOs, right? Yeah, it's all live. It's, it's called Directive R&D. So it's on our YouTube channel for Directive. Um, it says Directive on YouTube. And then we have full videos walking through LTV CAC modeling. Now, I think our models have gotten a lot more mature even since in that video because we have full-time owner of that in-house who like just develops our models for us and they've gotten pretty brilliant. So if a client comes to us and says, you know, I want to get X amount of ops, we can calculate a full like equation. And then I can also turn that into a 12 month forecast that shows the increase in ARR, um, period over period growth, 
And we can model that against doing nothing, against 5, 10, 15, 20% growth. Like we can model everything out. So it's really helpful when we're working with these large brands where it, it's hard to hire an agency. And I, I always want to honor that. Like when someone hires directive, they put their job on the line and their reputation by bringing us in. And I always want to kind of be like the IBM, right? Like we're an insurance policy. Like no one ever gets fired for hiring directive. We are that intense with honoring you and what we're trying to accomplish. And we're that explicit about what the goal is. And we make sure that that goal is always connected to revenue. And by honoring them and committing to that, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot safer to hire a directive, hopefully than anyone else. Absolutely. I mean, definitely check out the videos, what you've said. It's the LTV CAC. Maybe we need to do a revamp of a new video, Gareth, where we bring some of the great marketers on and, you know, get you to run through it. So I will, you know, um, proposition you for a follow, follow up because it sounds super cool. So I think that would be super fun. I think people would get a lot of value from it. Um, let's go back to the learnings of the $1 million LinkedIn ads because it's, you know, audiences listing on and um, you've got a real good hold of, I would say, search ads and paid ads. Right, search. When we talk about search, we're really talking about the Google platform and you know, and anything over there, and also YouTube, which is ownership, which also uses search. Captera, Software Advice, G two. We run all the third party review sites in the Google. We also do a lot on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram for B two B. So going back on maybe and focusing on LinkedIn ads, just specifically because I've got an audience that's specifically interested in that platform. Tell us what you learnt from the experiments. And I love the fact that you're using the, you know, outreach, the message um, outreach, because a lot of people are afraid to use that because sometimes they go, oh, the cost is really high and it's the creativity of how you market that. So I'd really like to get your insight on learning and covering off particularly, you love to use the message advertisement function and just tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, convo ads. Yeah, yeah convo ads. So tell us about that, why, you know, what you learned from your one Mill ad spend and then how you think about convo ads like you know what is your strategy there that you think really works is it can be really icky as well if done wrong so to me advertising should be based around hypotheses so the primary thing you're trying to do like like the environment you're living in so i always start with the high level and i don't like for all of what i like to think my success and expertise is around advertising i've never actually pushed any buttons on an ad campaign really before so like mine's all like in my head, I guess, to a certain extent, but it works because I'm trying to understand why things work, not how to push the buttons. And so what you're trying to do when you're running on social is there's like, there's no intent. So when you run search ads on Google for a B2B company, you have intent, but you don't have firmographics. In other words, I can advertise an SEO agency and there might be a hundred people who search. But if I advertise on SaaS SEO agency, there's only 10. And if I keep it on SEO agency, I have too much waste. And so what happens in search, especially for B2B companies and why social is so important, is that when I niche my audience or I try to go up market by layering it with words like enterprise or more advanced queries, there's not enough volume so I can't scale. doesn't mean search isn't important and you don't want to get those 10 queries for SaaS SEO agency, but you really can't build a big business off of that. So you have to go to social because social is firmographics, right? I can find everybody who has, you know, these titles in these industries. And I can advertise to them. 
but they have no intent. So I have to get someone who's on social, who's not trying to buy me right now. They're not in the active market to a sales call. How the heck do you do that? And so when I started with that understanding of this is the actual reality, right? We have a value at directive that says perception is reality. So when you can understand the truth, then you can adjust and modify your campaigns to leverage that and essentially create success. So on LinkedIn, the biggest mistake people make, and I'll walk you through our methodology. Our methodology is called customer generation. I believe there's a lot of people out there that are selling demand gen, but if they really believed in it, they'd be able to do it for themselves. And the truth is they can't. And the reason they can't is their methodology is broken. And so they can take other people's money, but they don't believe in it enough to spend their own on it. And I'm not that. I never want to take a penny from anyone if I don't believe it in my heart and soul. And that's why I sign off on the work before it ever goes to them. Like I will refund you or send you back the work or just if I don't believe it, will actually hit your goal. And I'm dead serious about that. And I think that's what makes us unique. And so what I wanted to do is to figure out for myself, the, the biggest problem we have in LinkedIn is the actual data of LinkedIn. So if you click computer software, so like the way in LinkedIn level targeting for advertising works is codependent on industries. That's the foundation of all the ads is what industries are you advertising to? And so like for me, computer software. Now the problem is if you go to betterment right now on LinkedIn, and if you're listening to this and you pull up your phone or you go on your computer, you can go to LinkedIn, you can put in betterment. Who's a, who was a client of ours, great company. Um, they're under financial services. So Betterment's not going to get my ads for computer software. So if I wanted to advertise to Betterment, I'd have to advertise to the financial services category. But the vast majority of companies in financial services look a lot more like Northwestern Mutual than they do Betterment. So now my audience is all jacked up. So the first thing I did is I went, whoa. What if I built my own TAM and instead of doing ABM, the problem with ABM is it's too small. So if I only advertise the 500 mm. accounts and I need the timing to be right, mm. the chance that a high enough percentage mathematically of the 500 accounts are in market for my service or my product is so low that I can't monetize my retainer if I took your money. In other words, if I charge you $20,000 a month to run an ABM campaign to 500 accounts, the math doesn't work. Does that make sense? And so I always want to make sure the math works. So I had to figure out how do I help you get every account? What's the what's the right amount there? Because you said 500 is not obviously enough because the LinkedIn ad doesn't kick in also if it's too small, the, the audience. There, but- there is no right amount. Yes. It's every account in your TAM. So the TAM is total addressable market. Yeah. So what I mean by that is for me, I used to think headcount was the best indicator for myself. Instead, mm-hmm. amount uh, funding is. And not the amount, but the series. In other words, you can raise $500 million in a seed or $20 million in a series A, hmm. and I'm a better fit for the $20 million series A than I am the $500 million seed because of your maturity level as an organization and how advanced we are. It just won't fit. And so I now filter people based off of their series A, and there's always people raising new capital, so my TAM is always expanding. And so I want all those. Let's say I got to 10000 okay? Now... Then I get that from Crunchbase or Zoom Info or Cognizant or Crunch or Clearbit, whatever that is, right? Um, and we do everything for Zoom Info. So, I mean, they are, I do still think they're the best, but I, and we use them the most. But Zoom Info, I get the data out of there. Now, I love Zoom Info, but they still have a lot of errors too. 
So now I manually verify. So I use an intern team or I use an offshore team to go through every single solitary account in my total adjustable market to verify that they are a good fit for my business. Okay. Once I have that data, I upload it into LinkedIn. That's step one of customer generation is I use my own data, not LinkedIn's. And now there's no longer a black box. You know where I also upload that data? To Salesforce. Now my client's director of demand gen can go to the board of the CMO and say, in Q3, we took 32% market share. Holy cow. Now that is a powerful reporting from marketing that it ties into a business vision. Okay. So now that I have all my data in there, the next step is I need to figure out my positioning. I have a very important saying when it comes to advertising that like that the champion is more important than the decision maker. Okay. So every client we ever hire thinks that their audience is the CFO, the CMO, the CRO, the CEO, CCCCC. But C-level folks don't buy crap. They sign stuff, but they don't buy it. VP level and down buys things. And what I mean by that is a CMO says to the VP or the director of demand gen, go out there and get me three quotes and then provide me with your recommendation. And then they get involved and you meet them and you can build a relationship with them. But they aren't digital buyers. Your champion is. So if you're not in marketing, that's fine. Just look at who your point of contact is after you close the deal. Who is the person you actually work with? That And if it is the CMO, then that's your champion. But if it's not your actual day-to-day point of contact, you've got your audience wrong. Okay? So I always want to find that. So then I'm only advertising to software. The worst thing you can do is be a horizontally integrated company where you think you have a bunch of industries and a bunch of personas, and I've never heard of you. If I've never heard of you and you're horizontal, I guarantee you your ads will fail. So if you haven't been heard of, you have to go vertical. You can't be a platform yet. You have to be a product. And there's no nothing wrong with that. Yes, your investors want a platform and you raise your capital to quote unquote change the world. That's great. I love that. I want to change the world too. In the meantime, we got to make sure we don't run out of money. Okay. And so we have to get traction. So we have all of our data to one persona, not a bunch of personas, one persona in one industry. Now we need an offer. Something that gets the audience who's not looking for what you sell from apathy to action. And for us, that's gift cards. So we use Amazon gift cards. The exact number that works best is $105. (laughs) (laughs) I've tried every type of gift card. Uber Eats, DoorDash, Yeti coolers, Allbirds shoes. You name it, I've tried it. Nothing works better than Amazon and I have no idea why, but it works the best. Okay. From that... I write a combo ad and I use what we call charm timing and I have some policies when I write a combo ad. First and foremost, you can never write more than three lines without a paragraph break. When you have four lines of copy, your brain goes and doesn't want to read. It shuts off. So never write more than three lines in an ad before having a space, like a break, a line, paragraph break. Next, use what we call charm timing. So we've statistically proven that 29 minutes outperforms 30 minutes. And that $105 outperforms $100. What I like to say is that your copy should be shockingly memorable. We live in a noisy world. You need to interrupt that noise with something that captivates you. The other thing is you have to use a scheduling link. The biggest mistake lead generation marketers or just anyone who's trying to book a meeting for sales does is they don't book a meeting 
they generate a form fill. The biggest drop-off in almost every single solitary funnel that marketing can have an impact on is between form fill and attendance of the event. So what we do at Directive, and the reason we came up with gift cards, is what we normally do when we get a budget, let's say we have $10,000 on LinkedIn. We give all $10,000 to LinkedIn. What I said is, what if we gave the budget to the prospect for the action we wanted and we motivated them to do it? So we give you $100 if you show up to the sales call. And you can book that sales call directly from the lead gen form after you submit. So the key is to make people make a commitment. Every salesperson in the world wants to follow up with a prospect that made a commitment, not contact a prospect to get them to a commitment. So when I get a so when I like book a sales meeting as a marketer, I am doing the peak of my job. Because now sales all they have to do is show up or follow up with someone who already committed to something. And that, so if you're marketing right now and you have a website and a form and it goes like, thank you, someone from sales will reach out within 24 hours. Stop that crap right now. Still do your form fill, but after they fill the form, there should be immediate next step. And you can use Chili Piper or Calendly, both of which are clients of ours to actually schedule that next step. And the key here is that you want them to make that commitment. And so from there, I mean, it's pretty much, that's it. We motivate, we use an offer to incentivize the action we want to take. And the big theory around this mathematically is that we're optimizing to decrease our cost per activation, our cost per outcome, not our cost per form fill or our cost per acquisition. So you want to optimize down funnel and you're going to get a lot more leverage. So you're going straight in and saying, charm them, do something that stands out, offer them that booking in that one message that you've got the opportunity to like go directly and be kind of creative about it, but go in for the kill. So what do you think about all the people that are talking about B2B takes a 180 day, you know, nurture process and the retargeting process of getting them to really know about you over a long period of time before they book in the call? Well, you know, and I, I didn't say this other. So you know how we have that TAM from earlier, that manually verified data? We use a programmatic vendor called Stack Adapt. And ideally, they should see your sponsored content too. They should see you on Facebook and Instagram. They should see you on TV. They should see you on display. You should be everywhere. And you should have some type of emotional video. You want to create an emotion. We have kind of an emotional matrix we take our clients through. Yeah. Around which emotion are you trying to evoke in someone? So yeah, ideally, they... That combo ad shouldn't be your very first brand touch. Got it. Um, but yeah, you should retarget people. It might take 180 days. I mean, hell, everybody's different. It's just you should never use your life cycle, your length of your life cycle as an excuse, but instead as an opportunity, right? If you have 180 days to warm someone up, the question is, how could I get someone to convert in 30 and then in five and then in one? And you should always be pushing. So you might start there, but you shouldn't finish there. I think there's so many ways to evoke emotion out of people and create a desire to hire you, whether it's their social proof, confidence, fear of missing out, whatever that emotion is, you can evoke that and get someone from apathy to action. Yeah, 100%. And I think that emotion is everything. And one thing that I don't know, one thing that I've noticed is a creative director on a team who can actually think creatively on how you evoke that emotion is super important as to, you know, when you become a creative agency rather than just an agency, 
Yeah, if you go on our YouTube channel, you can see our, we have what we call a hype video. So it should be something that gets you inspired, right? Because when you send someone a gift card, you have to get them from wanting the gift card to wanting you. Yeah. Right? So how do you change that narrative? And we do that with video. So you can go on our YouTube channel, you can see it's our uh, pinned video or highlight or our top video. And it's a one minute video, but it gets you excited to partner with Directive and to be a part of what we're doing. So do you think that at all, now wrapping up and sort of your journey and you've shared so much as to why you were successful. And I just want to highlight that for people listening was, you know, the, the gift card strategy that was just shared by Garrett, that was one of his, you know, strategies that really took him to the next level. That was when I asked him and I said, you know, what, what do you think really worked? And I remember we were sitting there and you're like having a think, and that was one of the pivotal moments. Oh yeah. I mean, when we launched it, we were holding 30 sales calls a day with named accounts. I mean, that's nuts. We took 62% market share in 12 months. Like we held 6,200 sales calls with named accounts via gift cards. It's insane. It would completely work. It changed our whole company. So my final question was, was there any pivotal moment where you went and hired a particular team, like a creative director into your team that took, you know, to the next level? Like, do you see agency or advertising agencies needing a creative director in-house because you said one of the things is that charming message yeah yeah yeah. well we call like charm timing yeah so is there you know do you think that there's a need for a creative director within agency or within even SaaS companies you see someone like ClickUp, right they're doing some really cool creative stuff do you think that there's that is what ends up differentiating because you get really clever or you know even if they don't name themselves creative director but is that you know the differentiator of why someone become so big and I've been looking at a lot of videos of even oat milk recently I saw a really inspirational video of oat milk yeah Oatly and um I thought wow is is that what's your opinion on that I would love to get your take on you know did a creative director ever play into your journey and is that something you experience or were you the creative director internally that came up with the wild ideas because it's all the wild ideas that are setting people apart no I don't come up with all the ideas so like I, what I do is I create a mantra and so my mantra goes like this. Everything we do should be shockingly memorable. Okay. So that's the first piece of it. The second piece is everything we do should be strategically aligned for the next 36 months. In other words, 36 months from now, is this tactic relevant? And then lastly, do we believe that the tactic can have an LTV CAC of greater than two? Because I know if I can get the, the, it to an LTV CAC of two, I can optimize it to three into profitability. So I create a mantra and so when I work with a designer, no, creatives are amazing, but creatives always, and this is a universal fact, bastardize their work for approval. And so the creative outcome of an organization is always controlled by the person with the most authority. And so for me, if you work with me on the creative, for example, directives brand, like we do everything ourselves internally. We have no creative agency. We have our own creative team in-house. But I wouldn't say it's any one creative director. It's the there because every creative is immensely talented. It's is the person that is approving their work truly fearless. And so what I do is if you work with me, you're not allowed to present anything to me that doesn't make you immensely uncomfortable. So you're not allowed to present me any ideas or anything you want that doesn't make you freakishly uncomfortable. 
And then I try to be inspired by other industries. So I follow every D2C brand, every other different type of e-commerce company or whatever that is. And I only want things that are shockingly memorable. And so if you like, for me, the, yes, everything needs to go through creative. Like if you get a sales pitch from directive, like the, my team just delivered a pitch and it was out of this world and I got to be a part of it today. It was fully custom designed. I mean, so our key at directive of why we win in competitive environments is we do things that don't scale. Everything we do is unprofitable, quote unquote, and shouldn't work. Like we do more free work than any agency in the world. And I take a lot of pride in that. So like to earn your business, we will do anything to earn your business. Because we want you to know how much we give a damn and what it's like to work with us. And we want you to feel our commitment because commitment builds trust. And so to your point earlier, like, yeah, creative is immensely important, but you can hire the best creative director in the world. And if the person with the most authority is risk averse, it doesn't matter. So I think, yeah, we have world-class creatives here, but you have to make sure that you empower them to be as creative as they can be and create a safe environment where they actually get uncomfortable because they've never been somewhere where they have to think out of the box instead of like most designers design for approval, not impact. And that's why I always push back because I want you to design for impact, not approval. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that that was really good. Do you think that SaaS companies should hire ever a creative director also in-house? When's the right time you would say? Day one. I mean, because you need them to design your decks to raise financing. To me, creative is everything because the value is perception is reality. So if your product looks like crap, people think it's crap. If your website looks like crap, you're not going to convince me that your product that I haven't seen yet is going to be prettier. I mean, you've got the designers that they all have. Say, we've got a UI UX, we've got a designer, and then you've got the next level of talent, which can think creatively and message in. So I think the founder has to be that. The founder has to, I don't think you need a creative director. Like I don't like, I didn't have a creative director for a long time and I have one who's amazing, but they're mostly on the client stuff. Like I'm still a creative director for directives brand. Yeah. Because like, I just think the founder has to have a knack for it and it shines. Like those engineering first companies aren't winning anymore. They just not like, cause perception is reality. So yeah, you can be an engineer, but you either have to find a partner, like an actual co-founder who's great with design, but I don't think you can outsource it because the creative director, if they're not a co-founder, they still don't have enough authority so that they're just going to fail. They'll eventually quit because one of the founders gets uncomfortable with something. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Like you have to have the person with the most authority in the room has. I guess it takes some time, right? They have to hire out a marketing director and then they have to grow towards that. So they do end up relying on agency. How do you see my final question? How do you see agency relationship and customer relationship evolving in the coming years with more and more of us saying, you know, you guys need more internal teams because, you know, um, you need to be able to produce some of your internal content consistently. Like we can't, you know, an agency can't carry everything for you. We can, but it's super expensive to get that scale because we're doing this level of work. So, you know, where do you see that landscape evolving? Um, that, I'd love your final thoughts on that. I, I mean, the best clients in the world have their craft together in-house and they have people. I mean, agencies need to work through people. Um, there's two types of agencies. There's agencies that drive strategy. There's agencies that drive execution. And you can be both, but it's a very rare breed. I'd say directive has finally crossed into that rare breed where we can do both. Um, we have a consulting model, not an account management model. So you work directly with the person pushing the buttons. 
So there's no like BS and like flow through account manager kind of relationship who like, oh, I don't know. Let me ask my team. Like that's the worst. Um, but no, I, I, I don't like content has already gone in house. Like let's not kid ourselves. Like content marketing agencies are getting their crap kicked in because it costs too much to create the content. And then at the end of the day, nobody likes content that they didn't write themselves. Let's just call a spade a spade, right? It's like, oh, it was a nice piece, but I don't think I would have said it that way, right? Like it's the nature, like content's the worst offering in the agency world. Um, now there are agencies that have kind of figured it out to a certain extent, but it's still not the same as having true subject matter experts that'll create content for you, whether it's organically on LinkedIn, like you help people do or on their website. Like it's a fake ass story if I write a post compared to you writing the post as the, the in-house team. So I think content just needs to be increased in its weight and importance amongst executives and they need to be a part of that story. Um, I don't think the future of agency and client relationships is agencies doing more content. I think it's agencies doing less content, but creating system structures and methodologies and processes that empower in-house teams to share their stories. Um, so that's kind of where I see it going. Amazing. And do you see the paid search is where you see the execution skills lying to help the organization? Or do you see that also getting announced? Paid ads, yeah. It's still, a technical, it's still a technical field. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much insight. I got so much out of that. Um, I'm sure that there is more that you could share. Um, I'll definitely be hitting you up on that event of to run us through your newest models because that sounds super exciting. Um, I just love your insights. I've learned so much and I think there's so much value that you hold inside and there's so many things that you've said today that you know I've written down and I'm really looking forward to sharing little snips and clips with our, within our LinkedIn because I know that you're a really big fan of sharing now on LinkedIn. You've got a big goal there. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So thank you so much for your time and just yeah, transparency and honesty in how deeply you share. Oh, well, thanks, Melanie. Thanks for having me. This has been great. You are listening to Innovative Minds with Melanie Francis. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind.